Hello, and welcome to Spectology, the science fiction book club podcast. I'm your host, Adrian. And I'm Matt. And today we are discussing the stories of Ted Chang as collected in his short story collection, Exhalation. And a beautiful day it is. <laughs> it's a really nice day here in New York, actually. It's been like, I've been damp for a week because of all the rain. And so I finally, <laughs> I finally feel like dry and sunny. It's yeah. very nice. <laughs> Ditto in my secure location. So today we're discussing um, Ted Chang's stories. We're going to go through, I guess, essentially all of them except for the title story, because we covered that last week on the podcast. That's our like 15.2 episode, if you want to hear about exhalation and all of our thoughts there. I mean, we talked for like almost like 45 minutes about just that one story and that's going to be end up being longer than probably longer than the amount we spend on most of the other ones so you know yeah it's gonna have to be uh, that's we, kind of why will, i wanted to do one story on its own yeah <laughs> we, we you know we won't we won't give short shrift to any of these if we can help it Right, right. Although I feel like some have a lot more to talk about than others. So we're going to like at the front here, just mention every story and kind of go through the list of all the stories and sort of like really brief thoughts. And then we're going to dig into like our like longer analyses of a couple of the stories and we'll see how many we get through in doing that. So it's going to be a little bit of a like, you know, we're going to adjust to the conversation of how much time we talk about each one of these. All right, but let's, there's a lot shall, to talk about. Let's, yeah, there there is. So let's let's get into let's it. Let's do it. Um, so the the first story is called "The Merchant in the Alchemist's Gate," right? And uh, this is the one that's set in, uh, or at least begins in medieval Baghdad, mm. and is set in the medieval Islamic world and involves time travel. <laughs> yes, this was a cool one. So Matt, would you would you call this one good or great? I would call this one on the line between those two things interesting yeah this is yeah. one i had read before i actually like bought the ebook of it a while ago and i would call this one great like this is one that i really really enjoy yeah yeah there's a specific reason why i can't call it great in my mind Ooh. and that's because i think he did a good but not great job giving us medieval islam as the like background that's fair that's fair and you know, obviously, it's I think, just the background, I think and yeah, we, anyway. can, we can talk about that more. We'll get into later. it later. That's a story I think we'll dig into a little bit deeper. Yeah. Um, number two is exhalation, which we've kind of already covered in the last episode. But good or great, Matt? Great, great. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. I, yeah. Next one is what's expected of us, and this is a short one. Yeah. Uh, where there's flash fiction. Yeah, where there's a little machine that somehow exists that. Um, has the effect of proving that free will exi doesn't exist because yeah. every time you push a button, a light lights up right before, before you, you push, push the, button. the button. And it always is correct. Yeah. I, I feel like this one. So this is the one, like when you asked me about free will in the last episode, where I was mm -hmm. like, I can't really talk about it. Cause yeah. I feel like I'm just going to spoil the story if I do. Cause I just literally read it mm -hmm. before um, getting on the podcast with you in the pre-read. This one's just good to me. Maybe other yeah. even. Like this this one wasn't as successful as some of them. Yeah, I agree with that. I think to me, I would say it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> We're already breaking our own rubric. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> what rubric? Um, uh, and I think basically it doesn't succeed at getting deep. 
or exactly. getting interesting in exactly. the core question. It's very um, surface. And it's not, it's kind yeah. of like its core question is different from what my core question would be in a lot of ways. And so that's, I think that's part of it for me. Yeah. All right. The one after that is a really big one. The yeah, life this cycle. is the longest he's written yeah. ever. This is his longest thing he's ever written. It's a novella, basically. Mm-hmm. It's the life cycle of software objects, and it's about the little AIs growing up. Yeah, um, and about the like parenting relationship right, of the human right. characters to him. I, <clears throat> I'm gonna rate this one as good, but I also no really way. liked it. No, I way. also really Just liked good? it. Yeah, I, I oh, have, man. I have some. The reasons it's just good for me actually comes down more to the like writing and the structure. Um, it's huh. not quite as tight as his like best short stories. And so yeah. there were times where it felt like the the length kind of showed and some of the seams around the edges mm. like showed to me a little bit. So it's actually good due to the um due to the writing and not due to the ideas of the story necessarily for me. Interesting. I think this story is great, um, but I don't think it's flawless for the totally, record. Totally, totally. None with of them is flawless. None of them is flawless. Yeah, I think this story is great because it, um, by showing you and sort of ta- by taking a long, slow, like boat tour through mm-hmm. an AI mm-hmm. growing up, exactly because it's taking a slow, sort of languid time showing you step by step it really draws out some like really, really important and like under discussed and under engaged with in the wider culture, uh, facts and, and like emotional concepts that relate to this. I mean, I think of all the stories here, um, except possibly, uh, the great silence, this is the one that's the most, Oh man, we're going to have important and accurate coming up. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's uh, it's not the only one that's important and accurate, but it's it's very important and accurate. We should we should not spend too long. On okay, these, okay, but okay. like, but right, yeah, sorry, okay. So sorry. the next the next one is um, Daisy's patent automatic nanny, which is about the like this kind of guy building a like clockwork nanny machine in in I guess the nineteenth century, something like that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, this one was like fine. I agree. It was, it was what it was. Um, it apparently, so I don't know if you saw this at the very end, he has like notes on every single I story did, yeah. and this story came about from a, um, like essentially an assignment from Jeff Vandermeer and kind of this like larger collection that was also right. being done in concert with some like artists. And so it was this sort of like collaboration amongst a lot of people and yeah, and it was just like, it, it was okay. I think it would have been more interesting in its original context. Hmm. I, yeah, I'm not even sure it would be because, well, maybe I just wouldn't, I'm not interested in that context. Um, I, I thought this one was possibly the weakest one in the connection, in the collection. Interesting. Um, it was, it was, I could have had it not be in the collection and been fine. Right. I didn't hate it, but you know, Right. I would say like this and what's expected of us are kind of like equally that for me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And again, I didn't hate either of them, but they were the sort of like the ones that just fell flattest. 
Yeah. Um, which is good because we're getting into like four like more interesting ones. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the next one is the truth of fact, the truth of feeling, which is sort of like <laughs> follows two narratives. One about a missionary teaching someone writing for the first time, someone who comes from like an oral mm -hmm. culture that doesn't have writing. And the other set in the future, which is about people coming to terms with uh, this new technology that like catalogs every video or text or writing or whatever they've ever like taken of themselves and then can serve it up to them on cue whenever they're trying to remember that moment. So can I say really quickly before you say what you thought of it? Yeah. This is this is in my top two picks for which one Adrian will like the most. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. You know, I saw um Kevin Kelsey who who was on during our um Chris Beckett, uh, Dark Eden, like he was our guest for the Dark Eden episodes, as well as like a bonus episode last year. Um, he mentioned that like this was his favorite Ted Chang story ever mm. as he was reading through through this like earlier in the month. Um, I I really liked this one. It has some issues. I would put it in the great category. But I think it also falls into like a trap, like the ending trap that some of these do. And, and I, mm. I want to talk about that more kind of later. What mm. about you? How did you feel about it? I think it's great. I think it's great. Okay. I, I, I really liked it. I was a little nervous about the, the missionary, missionary teaching writing section. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, and he, in his in his like now his own self-analysis at the end, he had some like good things to say about that, I thought. Right. Right. And I, I think... You know, if you read the whole thing, um, he avoids some important things to avoid, mm -hmm. but he may not avoid all important things to avoid mm -hmm. um, with regard to issues of race and colonialism yep. and uh, kind of high tech culture, maybe or like high tech culture that all that all this language is really fraught, like <laughs> our culture. Um, there's a lot of potential issues with like our culture looking down its nose at other cultures that have very different technological um, uh, pathways. Yeah. 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 So, so he avoids some big problems that he might have had, uh, but I think he, he may not avoid all of them. Right. But I still think it's a great story because Agreed. it does. Well, okay. We'll get into it more later. All right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So next uh, up is the great silence. This is another piece of flash fiction. Yeah. Or just short fiction, short, short. I don't know what you call it. It feels flashy. Um, and this is the one about uh, where a parrot is addressing the reader. Mm -hmm. uh, and parrots are an intelligent species. And they're um, very, very effectively um, bemoaning their fate because they're going extinct. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, I, I, I thought this was great. Interesting. Um, okay. Because... Because it's sort of, it's obvious somehow. It's like a very, there's not like a twist to this. There's not like a complicated premise no, no. or like any kind of. It's very much like, it is what you see on the tin. It's not surprising yeah. you like some of the others. Right. And it's also not giving you anything. I mean, I think in a lot of cases it wouldn't, it's not really giving you something to think about that you didn't already have in your head. It's like all working with stuff that's like maybe already in your head the whole time. Mm -hmm. But I think it just does a really good job of doing what it's doing. It's setting out to doing something. It's setting out to do something important. It doesn't take too long, but it does a good job doing it. Right. I so I would rank this one as like 
other or maybe like that like I have some maybe philosophical disagreements with this one that like makes it kind of difficult for me to like a like yeah so, so like you like don't like the the stuff he says about li linguistic species I think so and I think yeah. I, I I also have like I I um I think this tends to surprise people, but I am a bit of a like uh, uh, conscious chauvinist, I, I suppose you could say, um, where like I actually do think there are like different moral weights to different like types of creatures that have like different types of conscious experience. And I am willing to like, you know, be like, a, you know, the life of a mammal like matters more than the life of an ant or a bug or whatever. Um, and so I think that there's there's some stuff in here that like get like butts up against my kind of, you know, sort of like mammalian chauvinism um, that, that I want to talk about more in depth later. That uh, but is I so like that <laughs> so, you know, begs to be responded to, but I will leave it. I'll leave it for now. <laughs> I'm just trying to be odd, like, like take yeah, like yeah. the least, you know, the I least know, nice know. view of my own views. <laughs> <laughs> so next up after the great silence is Omphalos. <laughs> this is the what if young earth creationism was true story. Yeah. <laughs> but then it goes to a different place at the end. Right. Um, I really, this one was fun like i was great really enjoyed reading this i think one. great <laughs> yeah yeah no i completely agree i i completely agree and like in particular the reason it's great for me is it's like because i had read some of these before so of the entire one this was maybe the most like surprising and fun and page turning for me in a way um cool. because like some of the others that would have been like merchant and the alchemist gate like i'd read twice before mm -hmm. um or maybe even more like i've read that multiple times in exhalation i'd read multiple times so this one was very much like ooh, ooh, this is neat ooh, this is fun like i i really got to like play around <laughs> and engage with it um and like the twist at the end is really cool like the what, what he does with this one is to set up a thought experiment and like you think you know where that thought experiment is going and then he fucks with you inside the thought experiment <laughs> well it's just the the premise was not what you thought it was right and, and it turns out to be a totally reasonable premise but there wasn't it's really cool. a way for you to have guessed it at the in the beginning unless you happened to right no i and i don't i never would have of like that's the way he's gonna go with it so i i yeah I enjoyed you. You also thought yeah. this was also a great one for you. Oh yeah. I, I agree that it was really fun. I think in a way there's a way in which this is less controversial than some of the other stories. Mm. <laughs> and, and that like both... my like religious parents would disagree with you, but okay. <laughs> no, 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 uh, no. Let me, let me finish. Then let me finish this thought. Cause I don't okay. mean, I don't mean in some like objective sense, less controversial. I mean, it's less controversial to like in, in my head in a way that, uh, both explains why I found it sort of breezy and fun. And also it like sort of bothers me a little. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So so obviously I'm aware that like this would be controversial to many people in the world, like as a premise. Right. Um but I I find it much like like among the things that I take seriously, um, a scientific a rational scientific account of the origin of the earth is one of the like is like right in the middle of the things that I take seriously and just like assume are true. Um and that is 
it's it's kind of um that means that like i don't have to worry in the same way that i would in uh truth of fact truth of feeling or the life cycle of software objects or many of these other stories mm-hmm. that i'm you know maybe i'm getting something wrong you know in my assumptions as i'm reading it or like maybe i maybe he's getting something wrong in his assumptions as he's writing it right. maybe there's some kind of like unfairness that's creeping into this somewhere i wasn't thinking about that when i read umphalos and now that I reflect back, I sort of feel a little bit bad about that because ma- that's probably my failing. Maybe you know, maybe we should level. like dig more into that one here. Like I wasn't necessarily <laughs> going to say we should, but like now I kind of want to like talk about that. More well, there's one more. You. Let's do the right, one yeah, more. No, that's what that's what I'm saying. Like let's finish <laughs> yeah. off this like list yeah. listicle <laughs> and then get into it. Uh, so the final one is anxiety <laughs> is the dizziness of freedom. Um, which is also like with Omphalos, like the second kind of like new to this uh, anthology mm-hmm. story. And it's about parallel universe, like these machines that like both create and then let you communicate with another parallel universe that like mm-hmm. starts from that when that machine was created. It's also kind of about like addiction and mm-hmm. mental health and therapy mm-hmm. and con artists and like he does he packs like a lot of stuff in this story like i'm gonna call this one great for sure yeah i also call it great i think it's the most surprising Mm -hmm. of all of them to Mm -hmm. me this was the one that would that most like i had no idea what the hell was going on with this Mm -hmm. and i was really happy to experience that you know that that's a great it's a great experience when you kind of are led on this like fantastic journey yeah in the span of only a few pages yeah and you encounter all these strange creatures along the way not that there are literally strange creatures in this i'm I'm, you know unless you think humans are which they are Um, (laughs) (laughs) but it was just so it was so unexpected in so many different ways and i really loved the like in particular the combination of themes here yeah on the one hand Like, this is the great thing that Ted Chang does so often. He'll take philosophical questions from, like, completely different areas of thought, supposedly completely different areas of thought, and just mash them together. On the one hand, we have metaphysics and epistemology. On the other hand, we have, like, sort of selfhood and moral questions about who matters. And it's, like, so good. Right. And this one, you know, in some ways deals with like the free, like what I find the interesting free will questions a lot more than the one that's specifically about the free will machine does. Why did you think it was great? Um, I essentially for the reasons like I, I, it was surprising. It was, um, it dealt with like such a vast breadth of philosophical questions, but in like a coherent and like, um, sympathetic way like actually like the questions worked well to be dealt with together in a way that i didn't necessarily expect uh kind of like you know we talked about that a lot in exhalation of like you know this question of like mind and identity versus like you know entropy or like actually interesting questions to ask together but you would never necessarily think to on your own and i felt a similar thing with this story Mm -hmm. and finally so i was i just had this thought I, like we talked a lot in the pre-read about how Ted Chang kind of fits into a, you know, like some combination of like golden age sci-fi kind of style short stories plus like Borges style short stories. Mm-hmm. And there's some way and like he's still doing all of those things in this story, but it's also maybe the most like modern literary fiction of all the stories as well. 
Like he cares about his characters deeply as characters in this story. I mean, it's interesting you say that because it reminded me of Philip K. Dick. Oh, interesting. <laughs> I've never really read any of Dick's short stories. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I guess I suppose I haven't either. But it still reminded me of like a Philip K. Dick novel. Yeah. I think I've. I've actually. I. I will. I don't know if I've ever read anything by Philip K. Dick. Now that I'm thinking oh, about well, it. Well, he. He. You know, depending on the story. He does a lot of the same kind of like, this is all going to be based on like a, a complicated thought experiment. This narrative is based on a complicated thought experiment. When he's good, you know, it's because the ideas are interesting and he's like creating a good thought experiment and like investigating it in an interesting way. Um, and he also tends to be interested in what the people, like, like Ted Chiang, he tends to be interested in what the people are actually thinking as they're going through this thought experiment. So like I was reminded, for example, of Ubik. This is fascinating because my comp for this was actually going to be Alice Monroe and that like book of short stories that we read together. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Like I never would have thought of that. Yeah. But like this feeling of sort of like, you know, kind of like largely women characters, like very broken people kind of like dealing with the consequences of their actions in this sort of like short time period, like very much felt like like one of her short stories to me. Interesting. I see what you mean. Um, yeah. yeah. And that's what I meant by saying like, it's, it felt to me more like a literary short story than like any of his others. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't disagree with that. I just think it's interesting the way we talk about literary short stories versus, mm-hmm. cause I think science fiction really, really classic, like everyone would agree this is a classic sci-fi thing can still do that. Even back in the sixties, it was totally, still, I mean, yeah, yeah we, so, we talked about this in depth yeah. in our pre I mean, like, obviously yeah. I agree. I just like in term, like, I'm not saying yeah. that like science fiction and literary fiction are opposites or mutually exclusive, just that like yeah. there are different elements yeah. that you can pull into totally. a story. And this one to me felt totally. like it pulled in the literary character focus element almost like more than any other story in here which doesn't say that he doesn't have characters who are like very important and their inner lives are important in other stories just that this was the one that seemed to like actually that was the focus like the parallel universe stuff was more a way to dig into his characters instead of his like interesting characters were a way to dig into the uh, like philosophical Mm. questions Interesting. Yeah, I mean I I agree that it's doing that more than any of the other ones. I I I think I think that I didn't or the characters in this story were less compelling to me than the characters in Life Cycle of Software Objects. Oh. Whoa. Okay, interesting. Yeah. Like hard disagree, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so like, yeah, I mean he is doing it kind of on a relatively more than he tends to do it, but I still, I don't know if. Right. Yeah. So we should, we should dig into the, we should, we should actually like go deep on a few of these and it might be fun to, um, start with like, yeah, the life cycle of software objects and then dig more into the anxiety is the dizziness of freedom as like our first kind of like, like, let's talk about those two a little bit. Yeah. Well, before we do that, I just want to ask you, which one was your favorite? Oh, right. Um, I mean, I'm going to set aside Exhalation because that one has like, I have a long history with that one. Okay. Setting Um, aside Exhalation. Yeah. Yeah. And we, and because we already talked about it so much. Ah, shit. Um, Maybe anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. 
Mm, yeah, maybe, but I it's maybe. it's hard to pick a fa- like. I would say the the ones that really like stuck out to me are Merchant and Alchemist Gate and Exhalation, which I'd both read before. The truth of fact, the truth of feeling, um, follows, and anxiety is the dizziness of freedom. So those are the three new ones to me that really like stuck out in one way or another. What about software? What about the life cycle software? Um, I could have, I could have taken or leaving it in some way. Like it was not huh. my favorite of his stories. Yeah, that's so interesting. How about how about you? Um, it's really hard for me to like like with you as with you. It's it's really hard for me to say which is my favorite. Right. Um. I really This is liked... classic. Like, which is your favorite was your question from before we recorded. I know. Yeah, I know. Of course. Of course. I'm, but I'm basically, I'm giving the same kind of answer that you're giving. Right. Um, which I think is a totally reasonable answer to give. Totally. Totally. I just love um, that you will never answer your own question. <laughs> well, this is my answer. What? What? I mean, just because my answer is not what you were expecting doesn't mean it's not a good answer <laughs> right but but like this is this is the to me this is classic matt of like oh i'm gonna pose a question and then like you know when everyone else is well, answered be like well i wouldn't answer that question <laughs> no but that's not what i mean i i it's not that classic i wouldn't answer it. matt oh my god i am being painted <laughs> you're being I'm trolled being painted, on your own podcast <laughs> i'm being painted with the wrong color of paint <laughs> I'm going to put it together a super cut of you doing this. <laughs> this is not even a thing, dude. Like it's why? I think this says, I think, you know, you know what I think? I think this is, I think your perception of this as a thing <laughs> says more about you and your perception than it does about how I ask random questions. Okay. We'll see what I put together my super cut of Matt not answering his own questions. This is why we're doing this podcast, isn't it? So that you can create super cuts of me. What totalitarianism is this? What creepy, what a Ted Chiang story am I in? Like, I think this is more a Philip K. Dick story. The paranoia is getting to you. Oh my God. I've created this podcast to fuck with you. You're actually like a figment from the E. Chang. Yeah. All right. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Um, um yeah i will we... give to this question i will give yeah. to this question the exact same type of answer that you gave <laughs> and our answers are just as valid and good and and, and, and worth are. giving <laughs> um i i think that oh i really like a lot of these and right, um right there were several of them that i'd read before i had actually read life cycle of software objects before as well oh, interesting Cause that, or there was, there was at least a version of that that was available a few years ago. Yeah, that I think used it was to be a, available as a, a standalone ebook, as was the Merchant and the Alchemist Gate. Yeah, um, I really liked. I think I really liked all the ones that you really liked. Um, I think I liked Life Cycle more than you did, considerably mm-hmm. more than you did. It sounds like mm-hmm. I probably liked Merchant a little less than you did. Not that I didn't like it. Right. I pro- I probably liked. So what would your like top three be? Like I tried to give a top three. Like yeah, what would okay, your top okay, okay. three be? I think um, in no order. Life cycle, uh, anxiety, mm-hmm. and I want to say truth of fact. Okay. I thought you were going to put the great silence on there. Well, it's so difficult, right? Because yeah. I, I, it's just not as, 
it's this is why it's so difficult to say what like your favorites are because like life cycle to me life cycle to me i've now read it like twice i guess i don't really want to read it again right whereas whereas i would read the merchant again i think interesting but i don't think i actually think the merchant is is better necessarily better or like even better in a sense of me liking it more right (laughs) like so just maybe you haven't fully engaged with it and another read would help you I would enjoy like sort of thinking all those thoughts in that order again, mm-hmm. but I don't know if doing that again, I, the fact that I would enjoy it again doesn't mean I would enjoy it more than I enjoyed doing that in life cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's a, it's really, really tough because basically, you know, I like a lot of them. The reason I think this collection and his work is so good is because totally. his work his work is characterized by me liking a lot of it. Yeah. And not just like one story a book per book or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's so it's really hard. But right. I think, and it's not like any book yeah. has like one standout story and then like a bunch padding right. out. It has like, you know, over half are standout stories and then maybe a few that like are just trying to do something I don't care as much about. Totally. Yeah. Oh, man. There's so many things because I think there really are a number of these where we have slightly different view, perhaps. Well, so let's let's talk about the life cycle of software objects. I think this is going to be a good place to like get at the heart of some of these things. Yeah. Um, And then we can kind of like add anxiety into that conversation yeah. once we've gotten into life cycle for a bit. So can I say what I really liked about yeah, it? Yeah, no, I was actually going to ask yeah. you to do just that. Um, there are a number of things I liked about it. I thought it was a, I thought it was a really successful short story um, on like a, a several different levels. The first level is depicting a parent relationship mm-hmm. um, of a young child, um, but that child is not human. That's that right by itself is like a fascinating thing to write a story about to me. Perhaps it's because I mean, I don't have young children, but I have been dealing with infants and small children a lot lately. And so um, <laughs> it's really interesting for me to think about these issues because I, ha- I have been thinking about them. And I've been thinking about parenthood a lot. And mm-hmm. it's very interesting to do science fiction on that nexus of things. Um, yeah. If that's all the story was, I would have really liked it. Um, I, as it happens, the particular non-human thing that the ch- that the children are that they're dealing with in the story um, are computer programs, and I think that's another really interesting thing to think about. Separately from thinking about parenthood, the the issue of like creating um, self-referential, you know, software loops that can develop new abilities over time Mm -hmm. and thinking about and thinking in particular about the different emotional um, relationships that you can have with such a thing. Right. I mean, you you don't, because this is science fiction, it's, it's doing stuff that isn't necessarily like quote unquote realistic or whatever. That's fine. I mean, it's science fiction. I'm okay with that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it is doing real emotionally realistic stuff with that. I think it is very realistic. So, you know, right now, I mean, we can create like, you know, characters in video games, for example, that are completely artificial um, with whom a person could have some kind of relationship, although it would be very different from like a human to human relationship. And although that that entity would be 
I don't think anyone would call them conscious. Like they're pretty mm -hmm. different from a conscious entity, but nonetheless, like you can have interactions with them. You can, and that's to, that's right now. Right. The idea that in the future, at some point, there will be even more complicated versions of those things um, that can have even more types of behavior. Um, right. And then how do we interact with that? How do we work things like that into our society? And how do we think about what they can do and can't do and what kinds of responsibilities they should have or not have? And mm -hmm. you know, these are questions that are really interesting, I think. Um, and, and, and crucially, he's asking them, he's posing them in ways that are much better than they are often posed in our culture. Oh, I totally agree with that. Yeah. Like, I was very happy. Like, I, I think when I first read this story, I wasn't thinking about any of this stuff. And I was just like, oh, that's kind of cool. But since I first read it in the intervening years, you know, mm -hmm. there are a lot of buzzwords around, around this stuff that have crept right. into the culture. And like, right. there's a lot of like dumb, I think, useless discussion of, of some of these sorts of things. Whenever people talk about artificial intelligence or machine learning or whatever, there's a lot of fluff and BS. Um, but I think Ted yeah. Chang does a better job of talking about an aspect of that stuff that is usually not dealt with with any kind of, you know, talent mm -hmm. at all. <laughs> One thing so that, that really I appealing. really enjoyed about the story was that, and this is, actually has almost nothing to do with the like, you know, kind of inherent philosophical questions. But one of the like interesting things he pointed out and dealt with was like, you know, on the one hand, they're conscious beings. On the other hand, they are like technological entities mm -hmm. built by like a for-profit corporation. And like, mm -hmm. you know, like if they're techno technological, then like they exist within this capitalist framework. And mm -hmm. like, how can you, like, how do they exist in that capitalist mm -hmm. framework? Like, how do they exist as like entities that need to be able to justify their own existence by like having economic, you know, benefits to their owners in one way or another. And like that to me was like a really fascinating kind of totally. like angle of looking at this at. And I think one oh, that yeah. often gets totally overlooked, even among the capitalists who talk about this stuff right like they Completely. talk about like oh we'll build like you know like this kind of like post singularity ai and then like it will just exist and it's like okay yeah. but like what will we do with it like what will yeah. we ask it to like you know like yeah can we like really do we really think it will just exist and it's going to be that easy of course you have to this is why this is exactly what i'm talking about when i say he's dealing with this in a much smarter way and totally. he even has totally he even has characters in this story who represent the different bad ways of discussing um, mm -hmm. some of the different bad ways of discussing mm -hmm. this or not bad but like you know uh, less nuanced yeah less nuanced simpler you know there's characters in the story who want to create ais to be personal assistants and you know then there's other characters who want to create ais that just like achieve some kind of you know that achieve the singularity basically um, then there's characters who want to create AIs as to make and make them as alien as they can possibly make them so that they can study them and do anthropology on them mm -hmm. or maybe even live among them. Um, and uh, these are all types of people who I think exist. And I, I similarly to the opinion of the story, my opinion of them is that they are they, you know, they're trying to do a thing and there's nothing I can say that like, I don't think that their thing is. Is a good like I don't think that they're approaching. I don't think that they're framing a problem well, <laughs> mm -hmm. and so like whatever their approach to that you know problem that they think that they framed, 
I don't think that they'll necessarily get very far. Right. Whereas Ted Chang's approach to this problem seems to be like, well, what I what do I think would happen if like let's go well, through this step by step and see what would happen and how it would feel at each step. One to me, one of the interesting things that he does is it's not like, like most of the different groups that represent these different things don't necessarily fail to build AI at all. Right. Like it's not like anyone right. is necessarily kind of failing at the like most basic problem of building AI. But what they tend to do is like build AI that don't work for their given purposes. Like well, that's, that's exactly, kind of their failure exactly. state here. Um, I, and in I, particular, I agree more. <laughs> in particular, <Sorry>. <laughs> you just monologue. Let me get <laughs> I'm agreeing too hard. I'm sorry. I'll tone it down. <laughs> uh, no, I appreciate that you agree. Uh, I, I agree with your agreement. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in particular, one of the um, things that, you know, and, and like this is another this kind of like intersects with this other thing I liked, which is that like, you know, human intelligence and consciousness is like an inherently social phenomenon. And like, you know, one of the things Ted says in his like kind of like analysis at the end of the book is like, I can't understand how AI like artificial intelligence would be any different from that. And so like one of the interesting failure states is like, oh, we build a bunch of like things that like have the potential to be smart and then just throw them all in a room and they'll teach each other. And it's like, well, there's no expectation that that will work at all. Like they need Mm -hmm. like other like actually smart things to be social with to like learn how to be smart right like in the same way that children like need parents and like yeah Yeah. children do do stuff together that they don't need parents for but then they have other stuff that they do need parents for right and it's this like combination of like interacting with peers and interacting with like you know role models parents just like smarter versions of whatever you're going to be whatever you want to call it that like creates what you are at the end of the day it's really interesting because um, so many of these, um, so many of these specific kinds of, I don't know how you'd say like lit- like philosophical, like so many of the philosophical questions that surround this stuff can be mapped directly onto technical questions, like that, like researchers in the field deal with directly, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I think that, I think that you know, the, the framing is really the biggest problem that, that people run into a lot of the time. Even, even people who are like experts in, in machine learning, I would say almost especially people who are experts. Well, it depends on, it depends depends on on some of the like really famous ones are, are, are sort of maybe famous for the wrong reasons, but whatever. (laughs) So, you know, if you, you can be a research expert and do, you know, groundbreaking work, but frame the importance of your work and the meaning of your work in a way that doesn't really make sense. Oh, yeah, I know. And I think that's a lot of what's going on. I, I, I think it comes down a lot to framing. And that's what I think Ted Chang is doing really well. Like, he's framing the issues well in this. Mm-hmm. And it's it's actually like a really useful contribution to the culture, so to speak, because I don't know of anyone else who's putting out there in a popular, easy to consume and like fun to consume format, a good way of thinking about some of this stuff. Right, right. Or at least a way of thinking that's at this level, you know? And I think in, in particular, like, I want to get into the details of, like, what a good, because I agree, and so I want to actually get into the details of what a good framing Let's is. Let's do it. <clears throat> and so for me, some of it is this, like, you know, I think there's one really interesting thing that he does, which he sort of asks, like, you know, what are these creatures to us? 
you know, what are these software objects to us? And it's like, they start out as essentially like Tamagotchi, right? Like they mm -hmm. start out as mm -hmm. pets um, and that's how they're sold. And the whole idea is like, have a fun companion that you can teach. And like, you know, you know, we'll get to a certain place, but you don't know how or when or like in exactly what way that place will like manifest. Um, and then over time, like, they become more like children to the people who care about them most, right? Mm -hmm. Like the people who care about them most and keep them around for the longest are those who pair bond with them in a more like childlike way where they're like invested in the like long-term well-being of these creatures. Mm -hmm. And then over time, like that relationship changes and like, you know, they're the people who don't necessarily even like bond with them but are like interested in them kind of anthropologically like that you know building mm -hmm. the alien culture people and then of course at the end there's the folks who want to like you know bond with them and at a more like romantic and sexual level right like mm -hmm. who want an ai to like inhabit whatever sex bot thing like it's kind of unclear exactly like what the robot sex bot part of it yeah. is like he leaves that a little bit fuzzy but there's clearly this element of like you know like have a thing that you can have an emotional relationship with um, in addition to the like, you know, kind of like robot sex relationship with it. And like, that's a very interesting sort of like this question of like, you know, it's, it's almost, it's sort of like putting aside the question of like, whether they're like really consciousness or not, like that's almost less important than like, how do we relate to them? Like, how do we relate to their abilities? How do we think about their consciousness? How do we think about their personhood? And that's a framing I really like. Instead of trying to get at like, oh, well, you know, this computer program is conscious and this one is not. Or like right. this robot is conscious and this one is not. It's a question or this of like, are what it's, th these are its abilities. Let me enumerate for you its capabilities. It's a, yeah, right. Or, or whatever. And like right. this set of capabilities is like an achievable goal and makes sense for the story. And this set isn't or something like that. Right, right. You know, it's it's not like this is, yeah, like I, I, I totally agree with all that. It's it's to me, it's, it's about a kind of uh, uh, a spectrum versus a binary way of looking at things, mm -hmm. you know, so many people, when they think about AI, they focus really hard on the question of whether it is, whether it's really AI or not, or they focus on the question of whether it's smarter than humans or not. <laughs> yeah, I know. And like, like that's, that's a poor meaningful. framing. <laughs> Both of those questions are poorly framed. I mean, I don't think that's how smartness works, whatever smartness is, right. like the various different things smartness could be, none of them are that. Right. Well, that um, also like puts a primacy on like individual intelligence as yeah. a like method for getting things Absolutely. done as opposed to like, you know, like groups of people working together and building Absolutely. off of each other. It also puts a primacy on like the capabilities of the thing rather than the relationships that it has mm. with society and mm. with its, with the, because I think like the specific humans are going to matter, you know, the specific people that make the thing and, and, and like, and like the specific relationships they have with it are going to matter. Like right. the one, the one sense in which I, I think that there's a lot of, um, <laughs> sorry, that just like oh, made me think like, oh man. Yeah. Like when it comes to people who I don't want raising an AI, like Eliezer Yudkowsky is like top of the list. <laughs> Meanwhile, Matt, like I want you to raise a little AI baby. <laughs> yeah. I mean, without, <laughs> without getting, I mean, this is like so an entire pod in and of itself. That's why I, I love the story. Like I the know. story is so good. Like there's so much to talk about. We haven't even gotten to the actual characters, but also say, we, let's keep talking a little bit more because I think there's a little bit more about AI totally. to say. 
Um, Although we can also like we don't have to say everything for every like we're not going to be able to. So that's not going to happen. But, yeah. Right. But I do agree. There's more here. OK, there's a little more. So um, the stuff about society where it describes the ways at the end of the story when some uh, one particular guy who has an AI is trying to give his AI legal rights. Yeah. And the mechanism by which he tries to like incorporate it and thus and become the chairman of its board and thus create a way for it to use use the legal framework of corporations comma non-human entities which have legal rights comma. which are persons in the yes of the exactly law. right um and it's just fascinating to think about because that to me also had the that gets at a lot of other issues that aren't typically discussed but that are very real mm-hmm. i mean when we think about you know i mean when we think about things that have complex behaviors before we even get into a discussion of intelligence or consciousness or personhood or whatever, mm-hmm. when we think about things that have complex behaviors, there's actually already so many things in human society that have complex behaviors that we have different kinds of relationships with. Right. There or are different animals. kinds of like legal protections exactly. for. Yeah, there are animals and like different kinds of animals have different statuses. If an animal is a pet versus mm-hmm. if it's not, if an animal is owned Versus if it's not like that's such a a kind of bizarre, like legal world when you think about the complex right. behaviors exhibited by these creatures. And this also dovetails with the, the great silence, because I don't think you have to buy every sentence of that story to be prompted by it to think about, you totally, know, totally the the complexity of life that exists on Earth and and the. Right. The, the the way that we casually don't pay very much attention to it most of the time. I like 100% agree with you on all of yeah. that. I, I do want to like leave that aside because I think it's a whole other thing. Longer, yeah. yeah, it's a whole other thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this I is, agree that it fits so yeah. well into the like, because yeah. obviously like Chang has these like themes that bre- like show up over and over. Like you know, when we were thinking about how to s- structure this episode, one of the ways I thought was like, oh, well, we could just like write down the themes and instead of trying to talk about individual stories, just like, <laughs> like he has themes that show up over and over again. One of them is these questions of like identity and personhood and like what is a thing that we should like feel has moral mm-hmm. value and our actions matter on um you know and i think that a a lot of the stories deal with that i do feel that in a way that this story is like one of the things i like about it is that it's less about the moral framework of like what should Mm -hmm. we do yeah and it's more about the you know kind of emotional framework of like how might different people be prompted to act yeah right and just like just like a pet in a lot of ways like the the these you know creatures and so much as their creatures don't have like rights of their own they have like their owners have rights that like if you screw with one of these objects you're screwing with that person's property and that person has redress for like you having done that in the same way that pets work today right like a dog doesn't necessarily have rights like i as the owner of that dog have rights and also responsibilities to other people around like the behavior of that dog and the behavior of other people towards the dog just the other night i was walking home and I was I I was on these on the other side of the street from me. I saw all of a sudden I heard a scream from from a person, and I saw one dog attacking another dog, 
Mm-hmm. And the, the scream came from the owner of the dog who was being attacked. Right. And the owners moved desperately to try to separate these two dogs. And it took them a while because like it was not it was a sort of grim scene. Right. Um, and it was very, you know, it's very the, the, that sort of violence is hard to see in any context. But it was it, it sort of it was really interesting to me to think about like what how do we ascribe responsibility in these situations? I mean, I understand there's a legal question that has an answer, mm-hmm. but like morally, how do we ascribe responsibility to an entity that is very complicated and in some sense like can make decisions mm-hmm. um, and can do something rather than another thing, maybe. Right. Um, but it's also like a but, product of its upbringing right. and but care. But it's also, exactly. That, like has exactly. a smarter thing in charge of it too. And like right. that human, right. the owner, right? right? Like right. also has ways of making decisions that will long term right. affect right. this thing. And I, so I think like, so just to go back to the original thing. So like there are already so many, we already have lots of like, like millennia of deep experience integrating beings with complex behaviors into our societies and like developing different mm-hmm. ways of interacting with them on mm-hmm. an emotional level, on a technical level, on an economic level, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Not just animals though. Human children are like this too. Sure. Human children, especially when they're very small, are like deeply alien in many mm-hmm. ways mm-hmm. from our experience as adults, even though we were once them. When you look at them, like the things they need and the ways they emote and the ways they react to the world are just very different from yeah. the ways adults do. Mm-hmm. And it's super fast. And and, they, and we have yet another set of relationships with children that as with animals, because children, we have this like bizarre and fascinating concept in our minds that they will gradually become us, yeah. but they have not yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and these, these are all things that have existed for a very long time and nothing could be, nothing could be more integrated into human society than the relationship between adults and children. Right. But, I do we, think it's yeah. interesting that when it comes to like the sort of like life cycle of software objects, like one of the, I think, difficulties that the characters within it have in terms of these questions is that, sure, we have these various, you know, relationships with things that already exist, blah, blah, blah. But like one thing we don't have is, you know, like there is this expectation that like children will become human adults, we don't necessarily have these relationships with that many things that have language, like have a full communication suite, but like we don't have the expectation that they will become human adults. Like that's a much, much smaller group of like, like set of things that exist and like maybe doesn't exist at all. Right. Like depending on how you want to define. And like, I think that's one of the like interesting places here. So like, you know, in some sense, I agree with you, but also I think that like there's this particularly more difficult thing that a lot of people talk about when they talk about AI, right? Like which they're getting at, even if they're not getting at it like directly, which is like, well, this AI can actually tell me exactly what it's thinking. Like a dog can't, a dog doesn't have language. And like, you know, even a parrot that might be able to talk doesn't have language. It has maybe a set of words that it can use. Um, well, yeah, but that's uh, this, I think, um, that's true. AI is not the same, whatever it is, it's definitely not exactly the same as a person. That's that much. I think we can probably every, a lot of people will agree on, but, or it's like a human, I, at I, least maybe just, it's a person. I'm, I, yeah. I, I just think that the, 
the smart one of the smart things Ted Chiang is doing is he's taking advantage of the fact that we do have this like gigantic body of knowledge totally. and of totally. questions totally. and of different kinds of interaction to draw on when we think about new kinds of beings that have complex behavior. Right. Now, there's I also just, some like, stuff to me, that's going to be- It's just like, like the, a lot of the interesting stuff is like, given that, what are the differences, right? Like, oh. I don't think it's as simple as like, you know, well, oh, well, we already have pets. So we like know that we'll interact with AI and no. the way pets do, right? Like one of the cool things he does is it's like, well- it's this combination of these different legal frameworks, right? Like we have the corporate legal framework, we have the pet legal framework, we have X, Y, or Z, and we're going to need to like navigate them through these different legal frameworks yeah. over time as they grow. Yeah, this is not, I don't think, that's not exactly what I want to get. I, I don't think that like, oh, the pet thing is like settled, you know, philosophically. And so we could just use that. Not at all. I think the no, pet thing- No, I know thing, that's not what you're saying. The, the I'm just trying to add on to it. Yeah. The, and like move to, this to forward me, a little bit. <laughs> So here, here's another example from the story. So, so um, one of the points that one of the characters in the story makes is that nobody has ever seen an AI grow up before. So they literally don't know if it even will. Right. Like you know? where it and its end point is, if it even has one. Right. They don't know what it will look like next week, much less in totally. 20 years. Totally. And so there's, it's very difficult for them to like plan for the future. It's very difficult for them to understand even like like with children, so often you make decisions about them thinking several years ahead, like planning in relation to the thing you know is going to happen at sure, such, and such a time. Sure. And that's something that's totally not. And with pets, too. I mean, like with so any living thing. I This is actually one place where because I do want to move this conversation forward a little bit because um, we have eight other stories to talk about, too. <laughs> and like I want to dig into a little bit of like what I felt didn't quite work as well as this story on this story. And this like starts to but up against it, which is there's like, in particular for me, it seems that one of the points of the story is that like these creatures are changing a lot over time. And as they change, our relationship with them should also change like by necessity. And it felt to me like on a just like purely sort of like story structural way, I didn't get that feeling of change from the characters that are the AI. Like I didn't necessarily see them grow that much. Like the way they acted towards the, like maybe not the very, very beginning, but like once they're kind of like there as like, once they're like out of beta mode and out in the world, the individual like AI that we see, we don't really see a lot of character development or like, like intellectual development or like anything from it's sort of like, we're almost more like told that that happens than shown that it happens. We're like told, like the characters talk about how they're changing, but we don't really get to see them change that much on their own. And like that to me is a big chunk of why I felt like, like obviously the story brings up a lot of interesting stuff. We could have, you know, easily talked about this story <laughs> instead of exhalation in the last episode and like done an hour and a half on it. I agree. But I do feel like the, the story itself to me, like it had these very lofty goals. And so it's sort of like, you know, a plus for where you're trying to get, but maybe like B execution. And this is why for me, it's like one of the good and not the great stories, because I felt that it didn't quite fully like it fully executed on the thought experiment part, but not necessarily on the story part. The characters weren't super engaging mm -hmm. to me. I didn't really give a shit about most of the human <laughs> characters and like their like their stuff wasn't interesting to me and I wasn't, I didn't emotionally relate to them very much. But in the same way, like the AI characters are interesting, but I didn't feel 
the growth that I thought the story was trying to like imply was happening. Like I didn't actually see that growth on the page. And that to me, like, and I think, you know, like I said, like I, I, some of it felt like because it was such a long story that like some of it was maybe just like so slowly paced compared to his usual pace that you don't get to see some of that. Like, well, it was this and now it's this as much. That's interesting. I, I felt like, um, yeah, I, and especially I, the like main. Sorry, my final thing. Yeah. The main male character was like kind of obnoxious to me. Yeah, I I I didn't love Derek. <laughs> yeah, right. That was the same. Right. <laughs> um, I didn't love him. I didn't hate him either. And I I sort of I sort of felt like he was like making a mistake. He was like being dumb in a way that is familiar to me, and that like. In a lot of cases, I'm I'm I I don't have time for characters just being dumb on screen a lot. Mm-hmm. But he was he was aware enough of the ways that he was being dumb that I was okay with it. And he he right. he kind of like struggled what, with his what own. What specifically do you mean? Because right, he's so, dumb in a couple of different ways, and so I want yeah, to like yeah. you know, especially when you compare him to yourself. <laughs> right. So his relation. So so the story revolves around these humans that are taking care of these AIs. There are two of the more important members who we have screen time with are Derek and... Isn't it Anna? Anna, yeah. And Derek has an unrequited crush on Anna for... That lasts like years. Yeah. As they're adults, too. Yes, so they're, a they're adults. And they, have, and they have other relationships at, during this time. Um, and Derek starts out... And so the thing that you see is you see Derek at first married to someone else. And then his marriage, it's... Not so I, good. I, I mean, I know all this stuff. Presumably our listeners know all this stuff, right? right? Like right, we've, right. All, we've all read the stories. They're not yeah. that complicated plot wise. And I have like another I know, 40 I minutes know. I can record. Um, so yeah, so, so it's the, it's in particular the, like that relationship yes. that you recognize him as being like kind of making these mistakes. Yeah. That's what I was thinking of when I said he's being dumb. Um, right. Cause he's also, he like makes different decisions than she does about the like AI. And I'm wondering if you think those decisions oh, yes. are dumb. Cause I actually thought like he was no. like in some ways more pragmatic and that yes. was interesting. I, I agree. I think his, his, his decision about letting the AI, he basically gives his AIs more of a say in what they're going in, whether they're going to have a copy made of them or not. Right. Right. Um, and he does it like earlier than anyone else is willing right. to. And for reasons that yeah. I really liked. Yeah, I like them too. Honestly, at the end of the day, his decision to do that, and he decides to do that basically because he prefers the risk he's taking with the AIs to the risk of Anna taking this drug, which is exactly. the other option. Like right. basically if he does, he feels like if he doesn't do that, she'll take this drug. And I agree with him completely. Her mm-hmm. taking that drug is ludicrously stupid. Like, right, right. I understand her motivation on some level. She's being a parent and it's like, okay, she will do literally anything for her children. Okay. Like that's the thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, uh, that makes sense. Um, but it's still stupid. And right. I'm glad in some level that, that Derek made that choice. Like, I think that's like, it's, it's sort of sad that they have such an ineffective, like that it's sad that Derek is so, has such a sort of immature relationship with Anna that he can't like tell her this or like they can't like come right, to some kind right. of 
And that's some of my frustration with the right. story is like whenever adults are acting like children or teenagers in a story, like I get right. frustrated with that story. And that's right. some of my frustration here. I mean, yeah. I know people are do that kind of thing, but like there's also the element of like, okay, you're both like professionals in your late thirties, right. like get your shit together. I know. <laughs> Believe me, I felt those same feelings. Like it was frustrating. But at the end of the day, I think it worked for me because although it's frustrating, Derek also is in some other sense being mature and doing like, right and doing well, a difficult thing. And I thought too, like his, his motivation was not purely Anna. Like it maybe started from there and like, I don't right. want Anna to take this drug, but he also convinces himself from a thing that like, I like a lot, which is like, you know, this idea of like you at a certain point, if you agree that, like creatures can make decisions for themselves you have to let them do that you have yeah. to give them the autonomy to make their own mistakes even totally. like irreversible ones like you can't always yeah. be trying to make those decisions for them or even worse protecting them from a decision ever being made that's right, right? and like i you know i honestly like i tend to feel this way about children that like we should give children a lot more rights earlier and let them have like more of a say in like what they want to do with their lives a lot earlier um and i you know and i, I that was one of the things that i liked was this sense of yeah he's he's probably actually like right from that viewpoint that said like i i do think there's maybe some sort of like like this story more than any other story felt like it suffered from some kind of um i guess almost kind of like stereotypes of gender and parenthood right like anna is the mother who will do anything mm. for her children even at her own risk like you know Derek is the father and that's like more pragmatic and more rational in the way that he deals with his children, but also less emotional. Like there's huh. some of this stuff. Like I felt kind of like, I don't think it was conscious on the part of Ted Chang. I think it, or like, like, but it felt like it was kind of like an underlying, like the gender politics of this story felt just sort of like a little bit more stereotypical to me than like most of the other stories. Um, and sort of like very kind of like cis, heteronormative <laughs> kind yeah. of stuff going on. Yeah, I know what you're saying. That's definitely something I think could be improved here too, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. for sure. And I, I think like, actually yeah. when you compare it to, um, and I want to bring the story in yeah. now, the, the anxiety it. is the dizziness of freedom. Like that story didn't suffer from these same problems for me, right? Correct. Like yeah. the story actually well, kind correct, of like, yeah. I, agree. <laughs> I agree. The story <laughs> had uh, like the women characters as like the center the whole way through instead of as like the most screen time with, but actually kind of not the characters with agency, which is what the life cycle of software objects did. Um, and then also it had like complicated female characters who have like different motivations are very different from each other. Um, you had the gay couple that was treated as just like any other couple in a like good and interesting way. I guess like kind of almost like not interesting, which was good right. <laughs> if that makes right. sense. Right. Um, and like, you know, so from kind of all of those perspectives, like I, I, it just like it read a lot more easily for me from that perspective. And yeah. also like along with that, I think is like that to me goes hand in hand with also the characters were maybe to me more fully realized and had like more interesting underlying motivations. Like they had motivations that were contingent on their history and who they were and like where they were currently, as opposed to like motivations that were contingent on like the larger role they were playing. Right. Like in the life cycle of software objects, like, yeah, they, they're like, 
I don't like Anna and Derek don't really exist with a history. Like, sure, she had been like a zoologist or whatever, right? But like, ultimately, like, what's interesting about them is like what they're doing over the course of the story. Whereas in Anxiety, there is this like very real, like, you know, um, what's her name? The, the, the Dana, no, not Dana. Nat is a former addict, like currently kind of like in an economically distressed position, trying to hold on to her sobriety, like, but also like wrapped up in the service industry job and like trying to make more money through these like con jobs, um, which is interesting. At some point she just refers to the conning as her side hustle, which I thought was like a really phenomenal kind of like little character thing of like she doesn't think of it as like any different from just the bullshit she's doing for the like dumb corporation that she works for and like she has a point (laughs) you know it's like why why is some of that like like all the work that she's doing in some way is taking advantage of different people like how is it different whether she's doing it like for the legally sanctioned corporation or for like this maro guy who himself is kind of an asshole um, more than kind of an asshole well yeah i, I think mean, i think this is interesting because i think it, that you you've hit on perhaps the reason why i like life cycle more than anxiety even right. though i really like both of them and it's because um there was nobody in life cycle i hated as much as morrow like i just hated him i just like i th- i see i enjoyed that though i think yeah, yeah. right and and that's that's really the only that's kind of the difference to me. Is also, he how, gets how much, shot in the face. Of course. I know. <laughs> you know, he, he certainly doesn't end up, you know, ha- happily ever after. But but at I least just, one I version of him does. I know. It. I didn't want to spend time with him, you know. Fair, fair. Yeah. I don't and, think and, you spend all yeah. that much time with You spend well. a few pages with him and that's it. Like, I think the people you're spending time with for the majority of that story, I wanted to spend a lot more time. I was much more interested in Nat and Dana than I was in Derek and Anna. Yeah, it's it can be stressful sometimes. Like Nat's life was stressful. Yes. And that's the point or it's one of the points I think, but but that meant that I didn't you know, it was less pleasurable, I suppose, for me as a reader, but not like I don't think that's a problem with the story. I just this this is just a matter of explaining my preference perhaps. Oh, totally, absolutely. Yeah. But anyway. But anxiety I also is an awesome story. I think too the questions like the the technical element, right? Like the sort of thought experiment element of anxiety, yeah, was really fascinating. Oh, and yeah. like the what he got to philosophically play around with, given the technical element, given with the like, you know, I keep I keep kind of using this phrase of technical element, which is like, what is the like. T- thing that he has changed like what is the sort of like mechanical because like in almost every story not quite everyone but most of his stories there's some sort of like mechanical technological or metaphysical and i kind of get like all of these are like the technical Mm -hmm. element like the thing that is like that he's like turned 180 degrees while leaving everything else the same and like seeing how does that run out um and like the the one here of like here you have these like actual, you know, it's like, what if multiverse is true? And like, you actually can have some sort of access to these multiverses. Like what comes of that question yeah. um, is really fascinating. So what does come of that question? Um, yeah. I mean, you know, 
I think a lot of these questions around free will, right? Like as the world changes around me and like I make different decisions in these different worlds, like what does that say about who I am inherently? Yeah. So this is a really interesting, I, I really loved the posing of these questions in this story. I thought this was like this, maybe I can now begin to answer the favorite question. Cause I think probably I would have to say this and life cycle mm-hmm. would be my mm-hmm. favorite too. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but, and that's because the, I think the, posing of the question in this story is so good. And the the reason it's so good is not only does he, he doesn't just say, okay, so we have this piece of technology. This is how it works. You know, it, it's able to do, it's able to connect these, it's able to connect different uh, universes um, in the following way, such that they can impact each other. But the impact is as far as we're not sure the complete impact, but we are able to say that the impact at least involves X, uh, Z, yeah. one led light you know right. being a different color and that causes atoms to be perturbed and that has butterfly effects on the weather and that has various effects on all kinds of other things but the effects seem to be limited it's hard for us to say how they're limited social science research is ongoing into the like broader <laughs> you know societal effects oh, i really loved the social science experiments that he yeah. like came up with inside oh my God, of this yeah. universe so like, what cool. kind of social science especially now that like i kind of work in social science and like you know like <laughs> th- like this it was actually interesting like you were talking about like the framing of these questions the importance of that and that's actually something i've been doing a lot of in my work recently is like working with our political scientists and like and the other members who are not political scientists and like how do we understand the research that we're doing you know what are the like kind of scientific conclusions of the research and then like what should we do based on those scientific conclusions what's the like larger thing that we're going to take away from it and like these are really big heady important questions and like you know i've also done a little bit of like design work on these studies um helping our political scientists try to like given like given what data we can collect how can we design the study in a, in a good way and like you know, that's what he does here. He's like, oh, well, you know, we can only collect so much data. We can only like, you know, communicate like so many megabytes of data between these universes. Like there's all these constraints. Given these constraints, how do we like build something that hopefully will tell us something about the world? And that's exactly what doing especially social science research is. It's always like, well, we're going to try to control for as much as we can, but we can't control for everything. So we're going to try to randomize for like essentially everything that we can't control, but we also can't do that. So we're going to use statistical methods on top of that to try to like weed out stuff. And then given all of that, like what data can we possibly collect that like lets us do those three things? And like, that's such an interesting, like, kind of like, you know, it's like such a contingent way of doing science. Like we usually think of science as like, oh, you build this hypothesis and then you, you know, build a study that will like answer the hypothesis in a yes or no way. And like the truth of the matter is like, well, you're both doing that, but then also you're dealing with the real world. (laughs) Yeah. And, and Ted Chang is really good on all of that. And he's also really good on like the after effects, like, okay, so you got to conclude, you, you, you've got a result of some kind Mm -hmm. and how do mm-hmm. different people react to that emotionally in different ways? What are the different right. ways of interpreting that result? Right. And That's one thing Amphalo does really well too. Yeah, totally. Oh yeah. In anxiety, I am, I think an, an interesting thing about anxiety to me is that one of the conclusions that people draw at the end that is propulsive to the character's internal drama mm-hmm. is not super satisfying to me. The conclusion basically is that they draw some kind of comfort from the fact that some proportion of their other selves like had some kind of other result 
So in one particular case, there's a woman who, uh, what's, I don't remember her name. The woman who is the, uh, leader of the Dana, the, the psychologist Dana yes. is the psychologist Dana, Dana. That's yeah. Um, Dana is, uh, kind of feeling so much guilt over this thing that happens, you know, 15 years ago, right. she has this bad relationship with this person who was formerly her good friend in high school and like keeps giving her money and feels still feels guilty. And it's just not going anywhere. Right. And finally she has shown, um, a bunch of different versions of how the event in high school that she's guilty about could have played out. Mm-hmm. And that brings her a kind of new closure. And then there's another character who... See, let's talk about that specifically a little bit, because I actually really liked that, right? Like, one of the things I really liked about that, to defend it really briefly, is that, like, in particular, the lesson that she took, or I thought at least the lesson that Chang was, like, trying to, like, Mm -hmm. communicate to the reader, was that, like you are responsible for your own actions. Absolutely. Absolutely. But that doesn't actually make you responsible for like other people's reactions to your actions. Right. And like this whole time she had been like accepting responsibility for her, I think Natalie, her friend's entire life after this, like one moment Mm -hmm. in time, um, which was like not fair to herself or Mm -hmm. to the, to her friend. Right. Yeah. Right. Like she is like infantilizing Natalie and saying like, you know, nothing you've done has actually mattered. It's all like my decisions that brought you here. Um, And in addition, like, you know, putting this weight on her own shoulders that like shouldn't exist. And it's really interesting to like take this like, no, actually, your decision isn't what caused that, because when you decided other things, the same thing might happen. Right. Like it's not actually that your decision is the thing that causes her to make these other decisions. Like she is the cause of the decisions yeah. that she makes and it's not to say that what you did wasn't shitty you did a shitty oh, thing to your was. friend <laughs> you did a really really shitty thing to your friend but but <laughs> you know it's <laughs> yeah, like right. if you had exactly. not done that shitty thing the same thing might still happen and that to me is like a really interesting like i get why a character when confronted with that is able to let go and in like let go in a healthy way and not be attached yeah. to her own guilt so much anymore yeah. Oh, I, I also understand. I think the the way he drew the character makes sense. And the fact that a character would like, like the fact that a person would get that sort of comfort from that sort of thing, that sort of information makes sense to me. But like, and I also like his his goal, like Ted Chang's goal is to try to convince us that we have more, we, ha- we have moral responsibility for things. I agree mm-hmm. with that. Mm-hmm. The thing I don't like is a little subtle and weird. It's, it's that I don't love the argument because basically the thing that happens to her reminded me of the thing that is going on with one of her patients, Oscar, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, Oscar's like a nice guy who's her patient and he, you know, has a variety of uh, of issues. And one of the things that keeps happening is that he keeps wanting to know what alternate versions of him did. And he will sort of, he kind of acts as though that's the only type of evidence that could get him to believe like certain moral truths. Like he would all Oscar Oscar like and there was a little bit of and like right. I think we're I think Ted Chang doesn't want us to think that like Oscar's, you know, right. That like Oscar's got the got the best handle. No, on, Oscar on is like questions. absolutely wrong. Yeah. But I do think that, that 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 is a little bit similar to the type of argument that Ted Chang deploys himself with Dana and with um and with even with Oscar in the end. The argument basically that like um, you know, that there exists moral 
there exists like there exists uh, an experiment that you can do that will prove um, that you have moral responsibility and that that is sufficient evidence to believe uh, I see what you're saying that you have moral responsibility for things. I just think that's a little bit of a weird way to make that argument. Um, right. I think, I mean, my takeaway was less that like there objectively exists that experiment that should convince everyone because right. it's objectively correct. And more that like given X and Y existing in this world, this experiment might do to like actually motivate these types of people that there's an emotional valence to the experiment yeah. as opposed to like an objective moral one. I mean, there's like an emotional yeah. ethical kind of thing. Going I definitely, on. I definitely do think that's true. It reminded me basically in a negative way of the what's expected of us story where it felt like he was do making a similar gam. He was taking a similar tack and saying like, okay, yeah, like not only do I expect that this experiment will have this emotional effect on people, not only am I purporting that there's this philosophy that I can do that will like have a direct effect on people's brains, um, but like it should, and it makes sense that it would, it, it should have like a, a, an even high, like philosophy works in this kind of like, you know, Deterministic I don't know Newtonian if I agree way. that that's what he's doing. I don't. I don't know if he's. I don't know if I agree that he's making the step from like both it would and it like ought to in some sort of yeah. subjective sense. I don't think I. I don't think that's what he's doing. I got a little bit of that from what's. It? Not, it's not a yeah. lot. It's a but subtle he thing. He does to me. Like, do a little bit of that in some of his stories and stories of your life and others too. So like maybe 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 that maybe I'm being too charitable. Little. Yeah, it's a it's a little. So I I want to um. I have 30 minutes. Okay. <laughs> Just like, you know, let's do it. Um, but, so like, let's, let's talk through some of the other stories. I know, like, I feel like it's okay to leave stuff up in the air. Like we're not going to mm -hmm. come to a conclusion on that. every single one. Um, so let's talk about the truth of fact, the truth of feeling. I loved this story. I thought it was great. I also thought that, like I said before, I'm nervous about the colonialism stuff Mm -hmm. And the um, kind of uh, pre having pretensions about one's own technological culture. Right. Um, one thing I another. did like about, and I think I kind of want to tease out some of the specifics of this because we, uh, you know, we, I agree we've right. expressed this. I think like one thing I did like, and it's actually something he calls out specifically in the end notes, is that like he wanted to think about writing as a technology because mm -hmm. it's often something people don't think of as a technology. And, mm -hmm. you know, putting aside the like effects on the brain of writing and all that sort of stuff, like, like let's just put that some of that stuff aside for the moment. I think you and I both agree that thinking of writing as technology is good and something people should do more of. Indeed. Um, that, like, I liked that aspect a lot. And I think there's even some, you know, I would, I'm always very curious in this question. I mean, you know, the linguistics guy, right, obviously, but I'm, I'm always very interested in the question of 
you know, we accept that stuff like, so in, in, I took it, uh, uh, my first year at Yale, I took this class, uh, literature 120. It was like the one literary theory and analysis class that I took. Um, you know, I think it probably has like a influence on the way that I like actually like do the stuff that we do on this podcast to a degree. But also I remember distinctly, um, it was like the first or second lecture. It was very early on. The lecturer made this point about, um, you know, as he had been a professor, um, he had gone from the point of like having, you know, notes on phone numbers of people to having a cell phone that had the full list of every cell phone or phone number of every person that he knows in there. And he made this point that like he didn't remember phone numbers anymore. He used to have like 30 or 40 phone numbers that he could dial from heart like by memory easily like he could call his children he could call like his wife he could call like even like friends and stuff without having to look up his numbers and he could no longer do that and he noticed that a lot of like us and our generation just had like never really had that ability at all like we had always just like looked up phone numbers or like had cell phones for long enough that we'd never like had this large rolodex of cell phone numbers in our head so i think that there's this degree and like I ultimately, I think I agree with that. And I think that's some of the like memory stuff that in the future sections of the story, Ted Chang is getting at. And so it's this interesting question of like, so given that we agree that like the different pieces of technology that we have can both like augment our like thinking and remembering structures and also like, you know, to essentially like take processing power out of them. So like, I remember these things less in my head because I have like a machine in my pocket to remember it for me. Like there is the question of like, what does like, if writing is a, its own technology, like what does it do <laughs> in those ways? Like some of it's not going to be just the writing itself. It's going to be like, how does society use writing? What do we use writing for? Mm -hmm. Um, but I think it's a really interesting question of like, yeah, like do, do societies that have writing tend to do different things with memory, with thoughts, with storytelling techniques, like the storytelling technique of the guy being like, no, I tell the same story every time. And mm -hmm. the guy who'd learned writing saying, no, but you use different words this time in a different order. And he's like, fucking, that doesn't matter. It's the same yeah. story. <laughs> That's not exactly, exactly. It's not relevant. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. But then of course there are some cases, you know, sometimes like with the guy telling the story, quote unquote, the same every time that the individual words don't matter. You know, you can, I think I agree with his argument, like in, on some level, but there are other cases <laughs> where you know, like in the question of ancestry, who you're descended from, like, it seems like they're just, something was changed over the time. And in the human retelling of the story, information actually was lost or was purposely destroyed in mm -hmm. a way that would have happened differently if they had relied naively on writing. Um, now, obviously, you know, if they relied on writing, some other things would be different too and, you know, whatever. But right, right. I and think if, the it's, point, if it yeah. is purposely destroyed, you can right. also like alter you records. You can do that with writing, yes, of course. <laughs> But the point being just that there are some cases where we exaggerate the difference between these technologies and others where we perhaps don't. And mm -hmm, it's interesting mm -hmm. to think about which is which. Um, right. There's a whole other aspect of this story, which is really cool to me, which is the the impact of the new fanciful future tech on right. this guy's life. Right. And the way in which the ways in which he is totally wrong about his own life. I actually his relationship really, with his and daughter. His relationship with his daughter. Yeah. yeah I really, really like that. I really, really like that. that. I think that's great bubble puncturing. I think that is the sort of thing that 
actually will resonate with a lot of people certainly resonated with me oh me too (laughs) like we are wrong about our own made up you know versions of our histories of ourselves and there is this really interesting parallel between some technology that will allow us to record like a lot of our memories and our our and our memory itself and then like storytelling at a social level and writing things down at a social level those those this parallel that is the heart of his story is a really good one i think and makes a lot of sense yeah and like the the way he really tries to engage with both the pros and the cons of this is really interesting (laughs) like Mm -hmm. and i am a little i mean it's funny how uncomfortable i end up being at the end of the story because i feel like oh yeah like I agree with you. Technology can help and and do good things and like cause us to have better relationships with people, which is more important than a lot of other stuff. But at the same time, I sort of feel like the way the narrator feels at the beginning where there's some, there's some kind of privilege I want to ascribe to the way that I do things. Right. Right. (laughs) And that's not comfortable to feel. So there's this whole kind of conversation going on right now about the new cyberpunk 2077 game and sort of like, what is cyberpunk? And like this, these questions of like, you know, a lot of, a lot of sort of like facile cyberpunk literature kind of takes like body modification is almost like a squeamish. It's very squeamish about it. It's very much like, you know, and I think some of like the original uh, role-playing game that it's based on cyberpunk 2020 does this where like as you get technological innovation like added to you you become less human you like lose human points and if you lose enough human points you can't play that character anymore right um and like that as maybe as a game mechanic is like interesting and like makes the game more balanced but it also says something about the way that we think about how like adding stuff to us right like we tend to be very squeamish about the idea of like oh like if i you know like have a like augmented arm that makes me less human but does that mean if i lose my arm and have a prosthetic arm that that also makes me less human right like what sort of the like ableism like built into the ways that we think around this stuff but also what's just sort of the like you know like giving primacy to our own like current experience right and i think i think Mm -hmm. one of the things i like about this is that it presents in parallel his squeamishness with this new like mind augmentation technology and also his squeamishness with his like need to become a better father and in order to do that become a different human being right like this is something i deal with in therapy a lot which is that like to some degree like because like you know better in air quotes here like the whole way through but like to become a better person to become a better adjusted person like to whatever it is means to change and like to change means to no longer be what i am now and like it turns out most people are pretty attached to who who they are now i know i am i get like like the idea that like you know there's this very real sense that like oh to become better adjusted means like giving up things that i think about myself and even like in some way like dying and becoming someone new right like is maybe the most extreme way of thinking about this like to change is to no longer be me and it's like well it's Mm -hmm. to be a better me but even even given it's a better me it's still like something i don't want to do and i have all of these like defense mechanisms built up so like i don't do that right and like that's a lot of what like good therapy is is like working through those defense mechanisms and trying to like you know like build up new better ones and slowly changing over time in a way that isn't like drastic and gonna like fuck you up um 
And so I, I think there's this element of like one of the things I liked about this story is the parallel of like emotional development and technological development and like the mm-hmm. similar squeamishness we have with both of them and the understanding that like not all change is good. There's also emotional development that is like bad over time. Like you mm-hmm. can develop into a worse person like that is possible. Um, just like, you know, maybe it is true that some technological additions especially to our cognition will like be detrimental to us in the long run i think we see a lot of that with social media more and more and sort of these questions Hmm. like what is good social media what is good ways to relate to other people like what are good ways to communicate what are bad ways to communicate blah 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 but like you know it's a question of like this stuff is contingent it's not that like technology good or bad on its own but that like but also like the squeamishness we feel feel is us like giving primacy to our current experience as the right experience it's 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 something to be interrogated and like maybe like our initial response to it shouldn't be like ultimate trust right we should distrust that a little bit i i really identified with the character of the young uh african who learns writing um Mm -hmm. he I don't remember his name. He um, he decides kind of at the end to purposefully limit his interaction with this new technology of writing. Right. And and that to me feels like actually the way that I want to approach this in real life. <laughs> I mean, it's the way you do approach it in real life. Yeah, it is. <laughs> Mr. Like, not on social media. <laughs> yeah. I will, I will, I will use things. I will not like ignore them. Um, but I will try to be very I will try to be very intentional about how I use them. And if I decide that I don't like how it's making me feel, I will stop using it. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously that's an aspirational, you know, framework. Like I may not live up to that, but that's kind of what, how I want to think about it. And I think, I think that's, you know, there's, it's a spectrum obviously. And like different, different technology will work differently in different circumstances. Like for this, for the father in the story, like, yeah, it makes sense that he should like what he's learned about himself over the course of the story is that he's really wrong in his own memories. And so <laughs> yeah. maybe he like especially needs this like new memory technology. Maybe right. someone else wouldn't need it as much, you right. know, or maybe someone else would use it to purely live in a better time in the past and not like make their right. current life better. Right. Like or, there's all these yeah. failure right. states of the exact same technology. Right. Or maybe he's, yeah, maybe he's right in that other instance where he posited that like there exists a marriage that would have been good without it, but that will be ruined by it. Right, you know? right. That, that like both of those things can be true. Mm-hmm. Totally. So let's let's move on to another story. Let's um, do it. I want to hear your thoughts on the merchant and the alchemist gate. I don't know if I'm going to have a whole ton to say, but I'm kind of like, you know, yeah. maybe take five minutes to give your thoughts on like specifically what didn't work for you. Because I think we both like maybe let's do this. Let's start with like what I really liked was like the story within the story structure, the mm-hmm. kind of like thousand and one nights ish structure oh, yeah. to it was like really fun. The individual stories themselves were like very like. It's one of these places where in some like he builds that like he has this, you know, like whatever the technical element is. And instead of just doing philosophy on the technical element, like this story is really focused on like telling a fun story with that Mm -hmm. technical element, like more so than some of the others. Like sometimes he's really invested. It's like mostly about the philosophy. And sometimes it's like, eh, like sure. There's some stuff like, you know, like free will determinism, blah, blah, blah. But ultimately it's more about telling a fun story with this technical element than it is about those philosophical questions. And I actually really enjoyed that 
that about it. Yeah, agreed. I enjoyed that a lot about this too. I, I really like that. I like the, the the individual stories and the frame story a lot. Mm-hmm. To me, I think I had a similar issue here to the issue that I had with the African sections of Truth of Fact, Truth of Feeling, where I was just kind of, it was a little bit hard for me to relax while I was reading it because I, I, I felt like there was just a little bit of a thinness going on in kind of the backgrounding. Right. You know, it's almost like you're looking at a scene and like there's a, you're looking, you're, you're, you're looking at a, um, uh, a rendered, like a scene from a, a computer animated film or an animated film. There's a difference. There's a foreground that's sort of animated to move. And then there's a background that's like a still or something like that. Yeah. And exactly. like the still background like painting, right. The still background for the story for me was like a little fuzzy or a little thin. It wasn't mm-hmm. terrible. It didn't like, it didn't like, you know, have a hole in it. It wasn't on fire, you know, but it was, but, but it was a little thin in a way that was just noticeable enough that I sort of felt like I, I couldn't, I couldn't completely ignore it. That said, I totally enjoyed, like this was a very enjoyable story and I would read it again, Mm -hmm. like I was saying, which is not something Mm -hmm. I would always do. I think the thinness comes from, it's just really difficult. So like you compare it to, um, Anxiety is a Disney's freedom, which is a story that's set like in something approximating the culture that I grew up in. Um, which right. is, you know, it's essentially like, you know, right. 2018, you know, yeah. like Ohio or something, 2000 and XX, you know, <clears throat> right. And, right. Um, you know, in that, I feel like whenever something is not described or like casually given a throwaway description in that, like the door opened or whatever, it's like, yeah, okay. I, 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 I don't need to picture that door. I think we have enough c- kind of context clues Right. Um, where I feel you know like it comes from rely. Home Depot. You know that right. it's kind of like wood, but it's actually pretty light on the inside. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like you kind of know what it is. I can relax because I feel like the the network of context clues like creates this sort of like, um, you yeah. know, if you, I, if you I, I hear you, yeah, I hear you with with <clears throat> with Merchant. Um, it wasn't like there was any one detail that I could point to, but I just felt like there weren't. It was a combination of the details being like few enough that um, that I wondered about why he'd chosen those details and not another one. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the details being vague enough in some cases that I wondered if he could have been more specific. Or Interesting. Not. Interesting. It was just like a little kind of a niggling thing. Um, yeah. I didn't have like that. Like I, I understand why you had that response to it. I, that personally wasn't my response to it. If anything, like I kind of, you know, part, I think partially because again, I've read stories of your life and others. And he does this, I think a lot more in that book than he Mm -hmm. does in this one. Um, like a lot more of the stories are set in some kind of like historical period where Mm -hmm. you're taking, you know, some sort of like whatever their, that historical period thought about their own metaphysics and treating that as like true. Essentially the only ones you do that with here are like merchant and the alchemist gate. And then on where you take like this young earth creationism and treat that as true. Um, maybe, but yeah. Yeah, I disagree with you on that, but we can, you know, we already discussed that. Um, you know, there's no historical period that is treating a thing as true from. <laughs> there's no like one thing that is like a like an actual historical yeah. thought it's, that he's it's, taking as a it's truth. It's almost got this uncanny valley thing with the real world. It's like a right. merchant. The merchant does that. Right. Is. 
Um, right. I sent that, you know, I sent that episode out to like some friends of ours, this email list that we have. And like um, some of our friends got in an argument about like the design implementation of like, oh, well, if I were designing these robots, I wouldn't do it quite that way. And I was like, guys, like you're missing the like forest for the trees here. Like, <laughs> like it's not they're not designed and it doesn't matter. Like that. it's like the whole point is he's trying to like get at a philosophical thing and he needed to design them in a way to do that, like specifically. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, sorry, sorry, neither here nor there. But I, I think that um, when it comes to Merchant and the Alchemist Gate, I get your feelings there. I think for me, it just like I am kind of like the way Chang writes this stuff doesn't feel disrespectful. And to me, any of you know, me as like a white Western dude. So like take, take it or leave it. But like, to me, it doesn't feel disrespectful. It doesn't feel like it's purely throwaway or purely like, you know, kind of like window dressing. It fit like, you know, in his, in his, at the end of, of the book, like when he talks about the merchant, the alchemist gate, like he talks about specifically, like I wanted a like mm -hmm. Muslim and Arab, Arab setting, the Arab setting, because I thought this like kind of 2001s or 2001, oops, um, 1001 like nights tales kind of like frame story and like stories within stories thing would be really interesting given the kind of circular nature of this time machine, right? Like, like that yeah. thing, that's a really interesting way of telling these stories given the like technical right. element. And then also like, you know, one of the tenets of like Islam is this sort of like giving yourself over to faith, giving yourself over to destiny, like get, like this kind of like right. submission, like submission is a really yeah. important theme in Islam. And so like setting it in an Islamic world instead of a Western world becomes like kind of interesting to me. And yeah. I, and I, I like that, that he's taking like people with a different outlook on the world and asking how they would interact with this technology. Like he's not asking like, what would modern Westerners do mm -hmm. with this technology? He's asking like, what would like a medieval people who have like a very different like psychology than ours do with it? And not right. because they're like less, you know, it's like they're more technologically advanced than Europe was at the time. It's not because they're lesser. It's because they have a belief system that's different than our typical belief system. And so, you know, was that 100% successful? Like, no. Is it ever? No. And like, I, I found it like interesting enough for me. Yeah. But I can get why that would make you uncomfortable. Yeah. I, 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 I guess it. I would say just that my, my discomfort isn't so much that I think he's not like, I don't think he's not being disrespectful. I think he pretty much like, I'm very pleased that he's trying to do what he's trying to do. And I buy his argument. Yeah, it, yep. it, it does really work on some level, the, the combination of the setting and the themes, but I just think it's, it's thin rather than wrong. If that makes yeah, sense. Yeah. It does make sense. It does you make know? sense. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Cool. Are there any other stories that we want to like rapid fire through? Oh man. Um, you know, I think maybe, maybe um follows. It's yeah. like, we didn't get to the great silence, which we would be the one to like talk them. Like those two would be the ones to yeah. like talk the most about. I think there's a lot. Do you want to do Omphalos? Yeah, quickly? I'll just do my take on Omphalos really quickly, which is someone who was it. raised as a young earth creationist, <laughs> you know, who yeah. like was homeschooled so that I wouldn't learn about, you know, kind of evolution as a child. I've been looking forward to this. A lot of his stories have a punchline and the punchline isn't necessarily funny, but in a way the short stories are structured as a joke, right? There's this sort of like, 
buildup of expectations and then like a break in expectations at the end. And like this story both had the most clear punchline. And also to me, in some ways, that punchline was the funniest, like to me, this idea (laughs) that like young earth creationism is true. We have proof. Everyone believes in a Christian ish God because of it. You know, it's a little bit fuzzy on exactly like what religion, blah, blah, blah. But still there's this like, you know, younger creationism is true. Like everyone believes in God because of it. Like there are still secular and churches and stuff, but like ultimately like kind of everyone's like worldview is like aligned with like the world was physically created by something like 8,000 years ago. And we can prove that. And then like to flip it, the switch of like, but you're not actually the center of the universe. Someone else is like, what, what does that do to you that like, you're still not the center of the universe. Um, I found that, you know, deeply hilarious and kind of like a dark humor (laughs) sort of way. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and also like, I really, I kind of appreciated this thought of like, you know, because this is something a lot of young earth creationists believe and teach is that God created the world as if it looks 13 billion years old in order to test our faith that he actually created the world with like fossils and like an evolutionary record and like, you know, kind of like a speed of light that would suggest that we couldn't actually see the stars that are further away and all of this stuff. Like he created the world that way on purpose to purposefully try and trick us so that we would like have to have faith in him. And that faith would prove how like strong our faith really is, Um, which is a deeply fucked up thing to believe about God, (laughs) especially when you add hell into the mix. Cause like these people, like the, the way that this intersects with like the type of Christianity that tends to believe this is one that like your belief and faith in God is the only thing that like stands between you and hell, right? Like if you don't have perfect faith in God, then you will go to hell. It's not about your actions you take. It's not like the kind of Catholic thought of like, well, you also have to like engage in the sacraments and like maybe some people who don't like, believe in Jesus in the correct way might still go to heaven if given like what they do know and what they don't. And if they like engage in the sacraments and if they get like last rites and this kind of stuff where there's all this like complicated, like for the, you know, evangelicals, it's a very simple, like, have you accepted Jesus into your heart? And do you continue to believe in him? If yes, heaven, if no hell. And then also God is trying to trick you into not believing in him so that you'll go to hell. <laughs> you just, like, you just don't understand omnibenevolence <laughs> enough. How, I don't, you know, I don't know if the like, you know, evangelical God is omnibenevolent. I'm not, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> I don't think he probably is, but I wouldn't know either, I suppose. So I don't know. So I just like kind of enjoyed this story and especially given the idea, like one of the kind of like nuggets of an idea that was like fun in it was that, you know, everyone agrees that there was like one initial miracle, but then like, you know, we still pray, but like miracles don't happen anymore and getting confronted with this idea of like, oh, Maybe miracles don't happen anymore because the world that is at the center of the universe is praying and getting miracles, but God doesn't even like know we exist. Like God doesn't actually pay attention <laughs> to us because we're not them. It's like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> it's so wild. Oh, another thing I wanted to say about anxiety, just going back really quickly. Um, uh-huh. One of the things I also really liked about that story was that it has two endings that exist in two different like timelines. Right. That like in one timeline, uh, like in like the Nat's ending, she did not take the money. And in Dana's ending, she did take the money and then spent it on like helping Dana. 
and like mm-hmm. those two timelines like exist separately and like that's this cool kind of like sort of like you know the form of the story following the like function of the story elements that i really appreciated yeah i really love in um so i, I wanted to ask you about on follows how yeah. part of the way the story ends is that the main character um comes to a different comes to a realization about like she comes to the realization about the the nature of the universe that you've described and then she decides that she is big she has a way forward mentally to try and work on being okay with that mm-hmm. how much does her kind of mental journey like resonate with you as a thing that might actually be how people feel when they have their own interactions with the different kinds of evidence that exists in our real world so my answer to this is going to be kind of unsatisfying which is that like i actually forget exactly what that way is like i forget what her like mental trick is um the specifics of it but i think one thing that it does like that follows a theme of a lot of his stories though like he has this theme in a lot of his stories i think in particular the um the free will one what's expected of us too is this kind of question of like well f- we know for sure free will doesn't exist but what we have to do is assume that it does anyway right mm-hmm. and like that's how we will like fight the sort of like you know kind of like mm-hmm. malaise disease thing um and so it's a it's an interesting thing that he does like a lot of the endings of his stories, like it looks a little bit like the author, like kind of like looks up and like looks you in the eye and like, you know, his stories are parables in a way they have like a certain moral at the end of them. Like not all of them, but a lot of them do. And there's like times in a lot of them where like the narrator and thus kind of also the author, like do seem to look up and look the audience in the eye and like give you kind of like the moral of that story. Um, it's not a thing that I know if I always appreciate it. Sometimes I kind of wish he would just let it be a little bit like unstated and let you come to your own conclusions from it. Sorry. I'm, I'm answering a very different question from the one that you asked. Um, but, but this is, this is one that I like wanted to get at with like a little bit of dissatisfaction that I felt with the book was like seeing that trick once is kind of interesting seeing that trick in like five out of nine stories makes it a lot less interesting to me Mm. how did you feel about that like do you do you know what i'm talking about like this kind of like i do i do know what you're talking about um to me i think i didn't really mind that at all um the thing that bothered me a little more is something i already mentioned which is maybe a little bit related which is just the the way that there's a kind of assumption baked into the structure of a lot of these stories that mm-hmm. there's a kind of inevitability to the sort of conclusions. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah, yeah. there's a type of philosophical argument that is by its nature inevitable in its ability to change your mind. That's mm-hmm. like a weird thing that I don't agree with. Um, right. Right. And yeah. And I think he doesn't ever state we... that, but. No, but I think we both kind of have a similar sort of, it's like a similar squeamishness with like kind of like different sides of the same coin of Mm -hmm. this of like, yeah, like for me, it is very much this feeling of like, you know, he presents the moral as this kind of like, well, this is, you know, given the thing I've built, this is clearly the thing that like you should take from it. And like, I think at times it's like, well, given the thing you've built, sure. 
but like you know there i could build a different thing that you would maybe take a different thing away from like a different moral away yeah. from i i th there's also this other thing where he where it, you know i just disagree that arguments can even do that like yeah. I, I think he's sort of ascribing to arguments a power that they can't have right like like in, in other this words of course it's possible funny. for an argument to convince a person like of course right. that's possible uh, well, maybe not, of course, but mm. I do think it's possible for an argument to convince a person on some level. But I don't right. think arguments have this like inevitable power. I don't think there's an yeah. argument that's like, you know, Thanos with like all the <laughs> infinity stones. He can just do it and you can't stop him. Right. You know? This I, is I funny because in the pre-read, we actually had an extended discussion about like debate and the role of debate in society. And my feelings that like debate is sort of like... Like, I don't really give a shit about it anymore. I don't think it's the, like really the proper like mode and tone. And a lot of my feelings like come down to the same thing. But uh, like we cut that from the pre-read and now I'm almost like, oh, I shouldn't have cut that because that actually thematically fits no, in no, really it, well. It was yeah. it was not an interesting conversation. So I'm glad we cut yeah. it. But like I do, I, 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 I'm using this as a way of like saying like I completely agree with you that I think that there is a, you know, there's this element of like, well, I did it so I convinced you right like I proved the theorem so you're convinced about the like moral valence of this that's not quite I, I think it's not so much that he expects us to be convinced as that he expects that if this argument existed really then we would be but it doesn't right, so right, there's right. ambiguity like he, basically, he basically thinks that the yeah ambiguity, that's, a, that's a better way of putting it yeah ambiguity is contingent on the world being as it is Right. That the ambiguity is in the real world, but his stories have like a you yeah. know, inside that like if it were the way it's in the story. Yeah, I agree. And it's, you know, and I think you kind of get to that. That said, I, I don't I don't know if like, you know, I don't know if he's never convinced me, at least like I can't say that I can't say that, like, oh, yeah. you know, Chang's never convinced me. So there is a degree to which they probably work in some way. Yeah, I, I don't think he's he's the statement that I just made that I ascribe to him. I don't think it's a crazy thing to think like I his his sort of implicit argument to me is not like I, I, I disagree with it, but I don't think agreeing with it is silly and i think also that there's two levels there's like the level of the individual arguments that he makes some of which i mm -hmm. find convincing and then mm -hmm. there's the meta argument that there exist like inevitable arguments it's but this especially right. comes up in the free will story what's expected of us yeah i agree um, but it also i think is implied like subtly in other places mm -hmm. Cool. Well, I think I'm gonna have to leave it there, unfortunately. Um, we got some good, some good hashtag content. We in. did, and I think I like that we like touched on most of the things we wanted to touch on. But you know, just like a Ted Chiang story, like fine at the end, like leaves it up for your own interpretation. So yeah, just make sure episode. you look at the listeners. <laughs> yeah. So listeners, what you should take away from this is any last thoughts. Um, Ted Chang is great. This yeah. book is great. Like <laughs> it's so it's good. Really I'm glad good. we read it. I really liked it. Uh, I yep. think I think agreeing with him is not a prerequisite for liking it. Mm -hmm. I think that he does a good job of being fun while also making you think. Yeah. And if you've gotten this far in this podcast, hopefully you 
without somehow reading the stories, hopefully you will do so. Yeah, I can't imagine that any of this made any sense if you hadn't read the stories. So go read them and you'll get what we were talking about. Um, I think, too, we should say uh, next month, um, I think we'll be taking either a week off or we'll have some like short thing next week. So our pre-read will be on the second Tuesday of July um, this coming this coming month. And um, we are reading Max Gladstone's newest book, uh, which will not be his newest book in a few weeks, but right now is, which is <laughs> The Empress of Time. Um, no, the Empress of Forever. The Empress of Forever, thank you. Sorry. I, I don't know. I was saying like the Empire of Time for a while at some point. But yeah, The Empress of Forever. Uh Max Gladstone's latest book. Oh, Matt is like pulling it up and showing me he has a he has a paperback version of it. Is that like an arc version? No, this is the oh, oh this, this is, what is the, the for final sale. one. Cool, cool. Yeah, I, I have it on ebook, so I'm gonna start it. I want I didn't want to start it until after we recorded this, but um I'm gonna start it tonight here. Uh, on my actually as I have to take a like hour-long train ride soon yay um but we yeah we'll be reading that we're gonna have a very special guest on I don't want to like make announcements yet because we don't know exactly how that's gonna work out but we it there should be some nice symmetry coming up with previous podcast episodes um so I'm really excited for that it, like the book has been getting fucking rave reviews um it's great. and I'm 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 really looking forward to it and you know hopefully we can also like you know I know Max is really busy but maybe we can talk to him a little bit about it at some point too that would be really fun yeah hope so yeah so I think with that uh so pick that book up start reading it we'll we'll have an episode out in a few weeks here um you know should say thank you to everyone who's listened so far um to wj for the music that you're hearing right now to noah bradley for a cover artwork thank you um you can find us on the internet spectology.com is our sort of like you know if you want to listen to this we're also itunes google play stitcher blah 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 bullshit like if you want to subscribe do it um we are also at spectology pod on twitter i tweet um and if you want to like email us anything it's spectologypod at gmail.com yeah, I think that's it. Um, you know, live Sounds long good. and prosper, everyone. Peace out. Bye.